the scripture before Andrew comes. Could we all just stand in honor of God's word? So if you got a Bible, you can jump to 1 John uh, chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading verse 3. And here, here's what we're doing. We're just reading the very words of God that we're giving given to his church. And so if you're new to the church, when we read a text like this, we like to just remember this is the word of the Lord. And then together afterwards, it's good for us to say thanks be to God. Cool? So here, here we go. 1 John 2, starting with verse 3 through 11. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. That's still new, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, we love it. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Hey, listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, um, you would describe yourself as an atheist or an agnostic, uh, and you're, you're kind of wondering, do I, do I fit here? Do I belong? Yes, absolutely. There's no question that's off limits. There's nothing that you could uh, ask that would freak us out. We don't know all the answers, but we want to walk with you. So thank you for being with us. Maybe you're here and you're kind of gun shy when you walk in church because you've been church hurt, aka you've grown up in Oklahoma. Uh, man, we get that too. We understand and we want to we want to walk with you. And even if you're a little gun shy, that's okay too. This is a safe place to wrestle with the claims of Christianity. Before we jump into that passage that Sean just read, I want to do something. I want to introduce you to two fellas that I love a whole lot and are. I'm so glad that they're with us this morning. Jim Essien and A.J. Hamilton, will you guys stand up? So we, we, uh, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about these guys because I know that you want to clap, but you don't know why you're clapping, right? Um, so, so these guys are pastors at the Paradox Church in Fort Worth, Texas. It's a church that we love. It's a church that is in the same network as us. And Jim is actually the founding pastor of this church. And guys, I cannot tell you the quality of church planting and leadership that they are providing to the Fort Worth area. Uh, people are meeting Jesus. People are getting saved. They, they just recently planted a church. They sent, check this out, 111 of their folks 15 minutes down the street. And now the church is almost at about 200 people. So it's grown already in the short time. They've, they've sent gobs and gobs of money and they're raising up leaders like crazy, and they're about to launch another congregation. So, man, we love you guys. We are so proud of you. Uh, let's give them a hand for that. Thanks for being with us today, man. We, we refer to Jim within the Acts 29 network as Gaston. That's his nickname. So when you see him up close, you'll know why. Uh, all right, here, here's the deal. Let me, let me pray for that church, pray for their paradox, and ask that God would bless them and that every everything that Jesus died to purchase them and the people of Fort Worth, they'd get to experience. So Jesus, we, we pray for the paradox. Would you fill them with the Holy Spirit? 
God, would you fill them with, um, with all that they need, wisdom and leadership from you. God, we thank you that you are the pastor of that church, and I pray that your voice would be so clear to them as they move forward in the future and make decisions. God, we pray, we pray that this church would plant even more churches. God, we pray for every person in the city of Fort Worth, people that are far from you, people that are in darkness, people that are lost. God, I pray that you would use these men and their church to bring those people to yourself. God, we pray for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to be felt and experienced and theirs in Jesus. So thank you for this church. We love them. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Thanks for engaging that for, for just a minute. So here, here's what we do as a church. If you're new, uh, we, we take books of the Bible generally and just preach our way through books of the Bible. It's kind of our bread and butter as a church. And we'll occasionally do a series uh, not related to a book of the Bible, but that's what we love to do. And we're in 1 John, and today we're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, how many of you, this is back in 2005, so maybe try to go back in your heads a little bit. How many of you remember seeing the show, Is It Real? Uh, th this was put on by the National Geographic Channel. Did anybody in the room see that show? Literally no one in the room. Okay, great. One or two people. So this point is a total lead balloon. But uh, so here's the thing about the show. If you're not sure what it is, which 99% of you are not, um, here's what it was. They, they would take these weird, mysterious, supernatural events that would occur that people didn't have an explanation for, and they would just talk about it for an episode. And they'd get a believer that just hook, line, and seeker believed in this thing, and they'd get a skeptic, and then they'd try to find some logical explanation to whatever it is that they were investigating, and if they couldn't, then they would just say, yeah, was it real? Is it real? That was the point of the show. Uh, here are a few of the episode titles just to kind of give, give you a, a grid for what this was about. Spontaneous Human Combustion. I totally want to see that one, right? Uh, superhuman Powers, UFOs, Ghosts, Bigfoot, real story, my wife is terrified of Bigfoot. I'm like, babe, you know he's not real, right? And she's like, I don't care, don't ever say the word Bigfoot around me if I'm outside, right? Even in the house, the, the safety of our home, she doesn't like me to say Bigfoot. Uh, the Chupacabra was another episode. Sleepwalking killers. This is where you're in such a heavy state of sleep that you kill someone. Can that really happen and you not be aware? Uh, the Lost City of Atlantis. Bermuda Triangle, Crop Circles, Police Psychic Detectives. I have no idea what that means, but I want to watch it. Uh, exorcisms, and on and on and on. And the question, they'd, they'd, they'd host this thing, and they'd say, is it real, right? And, and, and the reason why shows like this are fascinating to us is because I think we genu genuinely, as people want to know, is, is that real? H how do you explain it? Even if we know it's not real, how do you actually explain crop circles, right? How does that happen? Um, and so this is what the show was all about. And what that show is doing is very similar to what the apostle of love, John, the author of this letter, is doing for a group, group of churches at the turn of the first century. He's looking them in the eyes, and as this 90-year-old man that loves these people a whole lot, he's asking them this question today, is your Christianity real? Is it real? And actually today, this is the question that John is going to put in front of you. He's going to hold up Christianity. He's going to say, is the faith that you proclaim actually real? And we'll get into what he means by that in just a second. Here, here's the thing about living in Oklahoma. In the Midwest, and I think especially in Oklahoma, 
um, when most people think of Christianity, what often comes to mind is actually not what the Bible would talk about as Christianity. It's something very different. There's, there's, there's a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociologist. And he basically interviewed a lot of people and was asking them, what is it that you believe about Christianity? And what he found was that it, it's, it's something very different entirely. And he actually calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And if you've grown up in Oklahoma like I have, or if you've been around for a little bit, the average person on the street, if you were to ask them, this is the, the Christianity that they would kind of profess that they believe. And there's really five big things that fit under moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's the first one. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So yeah, a God exists, uh, he watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. In other words, just behave, be good, don't hurt anybody. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. In fact, you can determine if you're doing things right by whether or not you're happy. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. You don't really need God to be involved in the intimate details of your life, but if something happens that's, a, a, you know, a terrible disaster or if, or if an emergency comes, then yeah, you might need to call out to God. And then finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. I used to spend years uh, after I became a Christian, I didn't know what else to do except to talk to people about Jesus. And so I used to spend years in Bricktown just walking up to people and being like, can I talk to you about Jesus? Can I talk to you about Christianity? I, I, I didn't have a method or a, I just, I just wanted to tell people about what Jesus had done in my life. And so for years, I walked up to people every single week and would ask them, hey, do you know about Jesus? Do you know about Christianity? And what I realized over time was the, the, the response commonly was, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I, you know, but I, I grew up Baptist or I grew up Methodist and I, I totally believe all this. I try to pray every day. I try to live a good life. I try to do the right thing. You don't need to talk to me about Jesus. I'm totally fine. And this happened in almost every conversation for years and years and years. And, and I began to wonder, do people actually know that they are embracing something that is very different from what the Bible talks about? Or, or I think they're thinking, this is Christianity. I've embraced it myself. This is what John is going to ask us today. Are you really a Christian? That's kind of a hard phrase. It's kind of a hard question. We don't like to think about that. I think if you're anything like me, the second you feel any sort of doubt or questioning creep up in your soul, you want to quickly push it down. Don't ask those questions. That's the enemy wanting, wanting you to doubt. And so we actually never ask the hard questions. How do I know that I know that I'm actually a Christian? What, what if I've embraced something that's, you know, it calls itself Christian, but it's not? Or what if I've embraced real Christianity, but I'm not, in fact, a real Christian? I mean, there are those in Oklahoma, right? So what, what if I'm one of those? Well, this is the question that John is asking. He's wanting you to look inside and say, is it real? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's okay. This is actually really helpful for you because John is giving us some handles of how to process what happens when Jesus comes in and changes things. So, who is John writing to? Well, in that passage, you, you probably heard this, but let me just re-say the groups of people that John is writing to. Whoever says, I know him, verse 4. 
Whoever says, I abide in him, verse 6. Whoever says, I'm in the light, verse 9. So if you're in the room and you would say, I know Jesus, John's writing to you. I belong to Jesus. I abide in him. John's writing to you. I'm in the light. John's writing to you. So those are the groups of people that John is writing to, and he's going to give us two marks of real Christianity, very basically, two marks of real Christianity. Here's the first one. It's the mark of obedience. We'll get into that in just a minute. The second one is the mark of love. And he's just going to ask, do you love God? Do you love people? Do you love people that are your enemies? Do you love the church? We'll get into that one in a few weeks because in chapter 3, he's going to just unpack that love aspect in a, in a really profound way. So today, what we want to focus on is just that first mark, the mark of obedience. And here's the question that I'm asking and you're asking, how do we know that we really do belong to Jesus? Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We'll just stop there for just a minute. This passage, I don't know if you sense this and feel this, this passage is very difficult, isn't it? And it's not difficult because it's hard to understand. It's difficult because this passage is very difficult to swallow. John is so clear, and he's so kind of out in the open and, and, and crystal clear in his meaning. And, and, and so he doesn't give us any room to budge or any room to kind of squirm out from underneath of this truth. He's saying, hey, you, do you want to know that you know Jesus? Here's how you know. Do you obey his commandments, right? He, he says this, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is actually a liar and the truth is not in him. So essentially he's saying, yeah, one of the ways that you know that you're really a Christian is that there's this life of obedience. There's this obedience to Jesus where he is the one that you are following. He is the one that you are obeying. Now, here, here's why this is wildly unpopular. And by the way, this is wildly unpopular to say. I think because of many of us and the way that we grew up in Oklahoma, uh, we were exposed to this, we have this past experience with very heavy-handed, man-centered religion. And this is one of the reasons why we bristle against this truth. It's like, yeah, anytime you talk about obedience in church, I, I kind of bristle a little bit and I, I, I want to slip out from underneath it because it reminds me of those churches that I used to be a part of or those Christians that I used to know that were so legalistic and heavy-handed. And, and kind of, if you're like me, you grew up thinking that God wanted nothing to do with you until you learned to clean yourself up a little bit. If you can't get a handle on your addictions, God's not going to love you. If you can't learn to turn over a new leaf and try really hard and get your stuff in order, why would God come close to you and want to be your friend? Do you want God to love you? This is how many of you grew up. Then learn to obey and learn to get your life in order. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do what you have to do. And as soon as you show God how serious you are about really following him, then he's going to love you. Can I just say something very clearly and look at me? That couldn't be furthest from the truth of Christianity. That this story 
in John and actually all throughout the Bible is not a story of us learning to love God and do all the right things, eventually to earn God's favor and his acceptance. This is a story of people that wanted nothing to do with him, and yet God in his mercy comes to us in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our baggage, in the middle of our addiction, and he brings his love to us. This, this is what it said earlier in 1 John, it's, or, or actually in chapter 4. It's not that we loved God. That's not the big point of the Bible. It's that God loved us, and he sent his son to actually pay the price for our sins on a cross. So here's what John is writing about. John is not saying, obey, and then you can be a Christian. He's saying, no, when the transforming love of Jesus collides into your soul, it has such disruptive power that it necessarily begins to change you from the inside out. When you start to taste the love of Jesus, this free, undeserved love of Jesus in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your addiction, in the middle of your brokenness, it does something to your soul. Uh, last Sunday night, I, I had just gotten home from an energy game Sean bought me tickets, and we were able to go and hang out at the energy game. I was pulling into my cul-de-sac, and uh, there was some chaos going on. And it was dark. The sun had set. But there was this 67-year-old man laying unconscious right in front of our house in the road. And so I hurried up, and I got out of the car, and I tried to figure out what was going on. Apparently, he had been driving around. He, was listening, he had heard some loud music in our neighborhood, and he was trying to, like, be a, a grumpy old man and yell at the people that were playing the loud music. And so he pulls into our cul-de-sac, and it's not us. Anyway, he decides to, like, put his car into park and get out of his F-350. But instead of putting his car into park, he puts it in neutral. And as he's getting out, his leg gets caught as the truck, we're on an incline, the truck starts to roll back, and it literally rips him out of the car, slams his head on the ground very hard. He's got blood all over the back of his head. And the truck runs him over on his legs, but an F-350 just runs over this guy. And he's unconscious, so I'm trying to get him up, and we, we call the ambulance. Before the ambulance can come, he like, I don't know what he was thinking. He, he just gets up, and he's walking, which is already phenomenal. He gets in his truck, and him and his wife, they just drive off and, and went home and would not allow the ambulance to help him. And so my wife and I and our neighbors were wondering, is this guy okay? Is he alive? Because, like, I'm a 30-year-old man, but if I fall that hard, I'm going to go to the hospital. And, and this dude, I don't know if he can take a fall like that and still be okay. And you hear stories of people dying in their sleep and all this stuff. So my wife the next day is, like, creeping on him. And she's driving through the neighborhood. And she sees the dude outside in the front yard just walking around like normal, his legs look fine, his head looks fine. When I showed up, his legs were jacked up, all kinds of, they're like folded in different directions, and I don't know how the dude is fine. Here, here's the point. Christianity is nothing like that story. Hey, I got hit by a truck, actually ran me over, and you wouldn't even know I'm totally fine. It had no impact on my life whatsoever. When actually the love of Jesus starts to run you over a little bit, it does something to your soul, and you start to change and become a different person. Some of you, by the way, thought that story was going to end totally different, you know, and then he died. And you're like, oh, this is going to be a sad story. No, it was actually a great story. He's fine. The love of Jesus is not like that. You can't claim, man, I was dead. I was lost. I was broken. The love of God came colliding into my soul, and, and, and I'm just the same. Don't worry about it. No, John says this is like disruptive power of God's love, entering a person's soul, changing them from the inside out. 
No, he's not saying obey, and then you get to be loved. He's saying when you've been loved, you will obey. Here's the second reason why I think this is just wildly unpopular, is we live in a culture that has this rugged commitment to autonomy and to self-definition. Here's what I mean. For us in our society, in our culture, the highest good, the ultimate value, is individual freedom of self. No one can tell me that I'm wrong. No one gets to say that you can't act like that or behave like that. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do whatever I want to do. I'll do me, you do you, don't mess with me, right? No authority, nothing standing over me. I'm going to live the life that I want to live. And anytime someone says, hey, you're actually wrong about something or you can't do something or stop doing that, we just bristle at that as a culture, don't we? You can't tell me what to do. You can't be an authority over my life. Here's the big problem with that. If you've ever seen the, uh, the movie Stepford Wives, not like the newer one, but the 1975 edition of that movie, there's a group of husbands that get really sick and tired of their wife telling them no all the time. So what they do is they actually like turn their wives into robots so that every time they want to do something, the wife will respond with this phrase, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. And over time, what they realize is that they can't actually have a relationship with a robot that only responds with yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. That if you're going to have a real relationship with a person, it has to be kind of a give and take. And you have to not just be someone that says, yeah, my way or the highway, but there's this give and take that happens. And if you're in a relationship where one person is making all the decisions and just, you know, do what I want to do, and the other person is yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, then it's unhealthy and it's broken. So many people have claimed Christianity, but the voice that God is saying over their lives and over the decisions is, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear. God is saying, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And whenever you have a God that lets you do whatever you want to do and is constantly just affirming your personal decisions and saying, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, you have to realize that you have actually created your own version of God. And he's in your image and and your likeness. And so what John is saying is you you can't have this Jesus and then like put him in this weird box where you're actually the boss in the relationship. It does not work like that. John is saying you've been transformed by this powerful love when Jesus becomes this person that you reorient your entire life around and obeying him. So this is the heart of what John is saying. Listen to his words one more time. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him If we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. You see this is something that Jesus has always taught. Christianity has always been about. In fact if you read the words of Jesus there are times where he says things that are profound. But there are other times if you're like me where Jesus says things that are hard to swallow. Listen to this in John. Jesus says this. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. See, Jesus is crystal clear about this. He's saying, listen, if you love me, if you really are about me, then you're going to obey. John Stott, one of my favorite writers, wrote phenomenal books and some really helpful commentaries. He has a comment on this passage that I thought was helpful. He says, true love for God 
is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. The proof of love is loyalty. We cannot claim to live in him unless we behave like him. In other words, what he's saying is talk is cheap, and anybody can claim Jesus, but actually not want anything to do with the way that Jesus is inviting them to live. Now, here's some good news. Obedience does not mean perfection, right? So some of you are like, man, what does it mean to actually obey the commands of Jesus? Does that mean I've got to keep all the rules and I've got to be perfect? No, praise be to God, obedience does not mean perfection. Here's, here's another John. By the way, I'm only quoting John's today. So here's John Calvin. He says, John does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments and... No such instance can be found in the world. That's encouraging. But, and then look at what he says, those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. So that's the question, right? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, one indicator, are you striving to form your entire life around obedience to Jesus? In Oklahoma, this is wildly unpopular, but John's just so crystal clear. You want to know that you know? Do you obey Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Not just in talk, but in the way that your life is formed around him. So let's do this. Let's do some diagnostic questions. Just you, yourself, just sitting there personally, just begin to ask yourself some of these questions. When it comes to your sexuality, for example, who gets the last word? Is it you? You get the say on what is and isn't okay. Is it your own human desires or is it the word of God? When it comes to your money, your finances, how you spend it, uh, all those commands about loving and serving the poor in our community, who gets the last say? Who forms your decision and how you make and spend money? What role does the word of God and the authority of Jesus play in your life? When someone hurts you, they offend you, maybe a spouse or a friend, and, and they do something wrong against you, do you harbor bitterness, resentment, kind of anger inside of your soul, or do you release them in forgiveness and in love? And on and on and on we could go. Like when it comes to the immigrant in our country, when it comes to like all these political issues, is it like your politics that get to decide and play the role? Or is it something more profound and deeper than all of that? What, what role does the Word of God have in playing this, this, this role in your life? So here you could boil all these questions down to this really important question. And this is the question that I'm asking myself. This is the question that we have to ask ourselves. When what I want and what the Word of God says are in conflict... Who wins that? Who gets to win? Is it me or is it the word of God? That's the question that John is asking. He's putting in front of us. So how do you know that you've really come to love and, and, and embrace Christianity? You love Jesus and you're embracing it. Well, John says one of the markers, not the, all of the markers, but one of them is that there's this genuine desire to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus. All right, so at this point in the sermon, um, this is what I feel, and, and maybe you feel this too. It's like, man, I, I don't know about you, but I come in from week after week of really trying to follow Jesus, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm actually more aware of my failure than I am of anything that I've done right. Am I alone in that? 
Um, actually, what happens when I show up on Sundays is I'm more reminded of all the ways that I've missed the mark and all the ways that I've failed. And so when this passage is read and when I'm studying this patches, passage myself, what starts to happen is I just start to get a little freaked out because I'm like, I really do want to love Jesus. I really do want to follow Jesus. But there's a tragic gap often in some of my claims and in some of the reality of my own soul. Do you feel that? Or am I just up here by myself. It's like, man, I, I really do want to obey, but, but there are times where I'm not even aware of how profoundly broken my soul is and all the ways that I'm not obeying. And so we're reading this and we're going, John, his nickname was the Apostle of Love. Are you kidding me? This guy is a jerk. He's not making me feel loved right now. He's making me feel discouraged right now. And I think John knows this. So in his wisdom as a 90-year-old man, right after he gives us some really weighty, really difficult, really hard truth to process, right after that, he busts out into poetry, and he's going to do something so encouraging for a guy like me that struggles a lot. Here's what he does. He just starts to write about the grace and mercy of God. So I want to read it to you and then explain what's happening here. So verse 12, look at this. He breaks from all the hardness, and he says, hey, I'm writing to you little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you're here and you're not a child or you're not a dad or you're not a young man, you're like, great, that's not encouraging for me whatsoever. John just mentioned everybody else but me, thanks. He, he's not talking about literal children and literal young men and literal fathers. He's, he's speaking in poetic language right now, and here's what he's doing. He's pulling in metaphors for the Christian life, and he's saying when you think about the church, there are some of us that are new to the faith. We're young Christians. We're baby Christians. We're little children. There's some of us, the young men, we're, we're maturing, we're starting to grow in our faith. And there's others of us that are, we're like moms and dads in the faith. We're mature and we've been at this a long time. And it doesn't matter where you are, oftentimes what happens is we're more aware of our sin than we are the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And so after all of this difficult, hard truth, he comes in on the back end and he says, I've got some good news for you. Listen to what he says to the little children, to these new Christians. He says, I'm writing to you, little child, children. Why? Because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Some of you need to hear that today. You came in broken. You came in busted up. If you are clinging, barely clinging to Jesus today, John says, your sins, past, present, future, they are forgiven for his namesake. There is nothing left that you have to bring to the table to get this God to be merciful and gracious and loving towards you. You are his little children, and it's for his namesake, not even because of you. It's his namesake that he has moved towards you and lavished you with forgiveness. You've done nothing to separate yourself from this love of God. Little children, new Christians, your sins are forgiven. Then he says to the young men, to the young women, to the mature 
maturing Christians that are growing in their faith. I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. I love that phrase. You have overcome the evil one. I don't know about you, but one of the voices that I hear throughout the week is, you'll never measure up. You're not enough. You've sinned too much. Uh, Oh, you did that one thing? God could never really ever recover from that. He might learn to put up with you. He'll never love you. It's the voice of the evil one speaking to me throughout the week. Do you hear that? By the way, anytime you hear something in the third person, it's probably not you talking to yourself unless you generally talk to yourself in the third person. Usually it's the voice of the enemy speaking lies to you. And what John says to these maturing and these growing new Christians, he says, listen, you, by the grace and power of God, you've overcome the evil one. He has no more authority, no more voice. It doesn't matter what he says to you. It it holds no power because Jesus has purchased you with his own blood and with his own life. You've overcome the evil one. And then finally, he ends it like this. Hey, you mature Christians, you fathers and mothers in the faith, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. Here's a confession from one of your pastors. The older I get, the more nervous I get about myself and my ability to faithfully follow Jesus for the rest of my life. When I was younger, it felt like passion and energy and excitement about the things of God came a lot more naturally than they do now. And the older I get, it's like the more life beats me up, the harder it becomes to follow Jesus for me. Maybe this isn't your story, but the harder it gets for me to follow Jesus. And I'm looking at people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who oftentimes don't finish well. And I'm going, man, if this person who, who seemed way more godly than I did didn't finish well, can I finish well? And what John is saying is, hey, mature Christians in the faith, you know him who is from the beginning. You've known his character. He's never once failed you. He's never backed out on you. He's never not worked this thing out for your good. You know him who is from the beginning. Take heart. He he has started something in you, and he's not going to stop it. You might be faithless and unfaithful in your life, but he's not going to let go of you. So John, after this difficult, weighty, hard truth, here's how you know you're a Christian. He comes around, and he just washes us with the grace of God and the gospel. So what do we do with this? Well, just a couple things real quickly. If you're here and you would claim to be a Christian, I think the first thing that you should do is actually examine yourself. Examine yourself. It's where you actually do look in, not in this broken, navel-gazing way, but you kind of assess the state of your own soul. Where am I at with this? There are a lot of people in Oklahoma that voice that they follow Jesus, but their lives are very disconnected from that reality. The question that John is asking you is, are you one of them? Do you see obedience inside of your life? What happens if you look inside and you realize that you've actually just been lying to yourself and you've been lying to others? Here's the good news. If you just simply come to Jesus as you are, and he will totally forgive you, he'll totally forgive you, he'll totally make you one of his children, right? He's not trying to out you because he doesn't want you around. He's trying to out you because he wants you to come face to face with your own brokenness so that you can also come face to face with the power of his love to overcome your brokenness. So today, examine yourself. Where are you at with this? Some of you Christians in the room, Jesus is pressing on something very specific, and he's asking you, hey, what about this in your life? It's just another opportunity for you to hand that over to him 
because he wants all of you, not just part of you. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, what does this mean for me? Here's what this means. That you have to do nothing to clean up your own life before coming to him. He's literally standing like this, arms wide open, offering you mercy and forgiveness. Just come to him as you are. Come to him with your brokenness. If you are addicted today and you can't stop and you can't fix yourself, just come to him with it today. He will love you and forgive you. If you feel overwhelmed to change yourself, that's okay. That's actually good because this is not a story of us changing ourselves. This is a story of God's power and love changing us. He can change you today. It might be slow. It might take years, but he is from the inside out making us new people. So wherever you are, the invitation is the same. Come to Jesus. Receive his love. Receive his forgiveness. Offer him not part of your heart, but all of your heart and all of your life. So would you stand with me? I'd love for you to do is just take a second and close your eyes. Ask those questions. Where do you need to give more of your life to Jesus? Where do you need to give more of your heart? Allow the Spirit of God to do work in you. And then I'd love for you to just look up here. If you're not a Christian, here's how we're going to close. Uh, we're going to come to what's called the table of the Lord. And this is bread, but it's, it's, really, it's the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And this is wine, but it's the blood of Jesus that was shed for our forgiveness. So as Christians, what we're doing is we're actually coming to this meal because we're needy and we're hungry. And Jesus today, like every day and like every Sunday, is offering us grace upon grace. So if you're not a Christian, we would say, don't come and receive this because this is for people who are trusting in Jesus. We're going to have some slides up on the screen that we would love for you to pray. And if you feel uncomfortable um, praying that or if maybe you have questions about that and you want to come and talk to someone, we're going to have men and women down front ready to talk with you, ready to interact with you and answer any questions that you have. So it would be so fun to have you come. There's no, no silly, stupid thing that you could ask. It's a safe place. If you are a follower of Jesus... You came in today with an awareness of your sin. You came in today with an awareness of your brokenness. You came in today with an awareness of how much you probably fail and all the ways that you don't measure up. Will you just, will you just close your eyes and listen to this truth? While we were dead in sin, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you feel unworthy, it's because you are. It's by grace. If you feel too broken, it's because you are. It's by grace. Parts of our heart need to change, and they're not going to change until we experience in more profound ways, the love of God. So God, thank you that you love us as we are. Thank you that because of Jesus, we have been forgiven. Thank you that because of Jesus, we have been clothed with righteousness. Thank you because of Jesus that when you look at us, you see the love and the effect, the same love and affection you had for Jesus is the same that you have for me and for us. And God, we really do want to love you. We really do want to follow you. We really do want to orient our entire lives 
around obedience to you. So take all of our heart, take all of our time and our possessions and our energy and our gifting and our effort, we give it to you. We want you to be the one that we follow and we obey. God, all the ways that my desires trump what you want for my life, I just, I repent of that in Jesus' name. And I, I give you more of my heart, Jesus. We give you more of our heart. Change us from the inside out. Pray these things in your name. Amen.